Absolutely. I mean, I always realized it was such an underserved population. I just feel like it was never shown on media. It was never, you never really heard the big comeback stories in dance. So it was always just, oh, they had a great career, but I'm bummed, done. And there was never that comeback where you get that with a lot of athletes. There's always the comeback, there's the rehab, there's the big triumphant moment. And that was not highlighted many years ago uh, in the arts in general. It was more of just when it's over, it's over. Hi, I'm Monica Lorenzo, and I'm the head athletic trainer for the Knicks Entertainment Teams and founder and president of RomoFit Inc. And you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Even still to this day, I feel like that stands true in the sense that every time there's an ESPN highlight story, it's who got hurt last season and how are they coming back and they're great on the field again this season and what do we expect from them. If you look at performing arts, if you have the ballet produced this year, well, maybe someone's not in the cast from last year, but no one knows why and no one will ever know like, oh, maybe they are actually rehabbing an injury and will be back next season bigger, better, and stronger than they ever were, but it's not something that is in the limelight and is ever really seen kind of to the mainstream public. Hi, I'm Marissa Pilato. I'm the head athletic trainer for Brooklyn Sports Entertainment and the assistant athletic trainer for the Radio City Rockettes, and you are listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to an all-new episode of the Heads and Tails podcast. Uh, Today I traveled to New York City, and I am in the presence of two amazing athletic trainers. The first one up is Marissa Pilato, who is the head athletic trainer for the Brooklyn Nets dance team, the Brooklyn Nets hype team, and uh, the Brooklyn Nets kids dance team. Hello. Thanks, Marissa. (laughs) Uh, And our other guest is uh, Monica Lorenzo, who is the head athletic trainer for the Knicks entertainment teams and is the founder and president of Romo Fit. Hey. So thank you very much for joining me today for this podcast where we're going to talk all about dance medicine which is a new topic that I've never covered on the podcast to date and I know you guys are all over social media it's fun to follow you guys and um, so I'm excited to be here. We are so excited for this thank you so much. Of course so let's start off by just making one thing clear here Uh, and that's in your opinion why should dance be considered a sport? In my opinion I appreciate you know, the athleticism of dancers. I know if I ever go to a Broadway show and I'm like genuinely like impressed by these physical, you know, feats. So tell the audience that might be not in the same Mm -hmm. camp, uh, Mm -hmm. why dance is a sport. So for me, dancers are athletes. They basically train anywhere from five to seven days a week, including performances, cross training, and anything outside of there. So it's really kind of all different techniques of dance as well. So it's never just I'm clinically trained in one sector. I have a variety of different aspects of that sport. So the best way to compare it is think about your football player. He's not just a running back. He's a running back, a fullback, a wide receiver. He can basically play any position on the field, Mm -hmm. and that's what a dancer is. Correct. And even though the argument is made a lot that you can't score the system, but now you can. I mean, if anyone's watching – any type of mainstream TV, I mean, World of Dance, hello, Dancing with the Stars, all of those systems, they're scored because there's technique that's still involved. Even though it's an art form, there is a technicality and a training aspect that must be implemented. And when performers are performing, they're being scored technically on that level. And those are the levels that they're aspiring to as well, is to have that great technique as well as their art form. And that's a good point, too, with the scoring piece, because yeah. I didn't really like think about that in my that a lot. definition mm-hmm. of a dancer, <laughs> right? But, yeah, they're performing, and they're looking for a score in those situations. Exactly. So, yeah, why There's competitive it? dance. I grew up a competitive dancer, and that was a big thing as, you know, a lot of times, yes, you're going to have a little bit of a subjective evaluation, but that happens in real-time sports as well and your, mm-hmm. your general sports as well. A, a ref can make a call that you're not always going to agree with, and that kind of goes along the same lines. But the technique and the basis and the core is still there when it comes to evaluating dance. Okay. And uh, so while we're on that topic, you know, can you guys provide us with a little bit of background on your, your dance background that yeah, kind of got course. you into this? Yeah. So I, I'm, this is Monica speaking, and I grew up a 
dancer here in New York City. I danced all my life. I was a competitive dancer growing up in Middle Village, Queens, and I was at a local studio called Moves and Motions, and I spent my life dancing there. I dabbled in basketball when I was in middle school. It was kind of the most tragic thing ever. Yeah, it was horrible. Tragic? <laughs> yes. Why was it tragic? I was terrible. <laughs> I was meant to be a dancer. Oh. I was good at defense a little bit because I had quick feet, but then, so I kind of rerouted back to my calling as dance, and I grew up dancing there, and then I went to performing arts high school here in Manhattan, the fame school, LaGuardia, and that was where I kind of transitioned, though, into dance medicine uh, was the inspiration of my ballet teacher, actually, from LaGuardia. So when it came into the college process of looking for what I wanted to major in, I had never had an injury. So a career-ending injury, though, was something that lingered over my head and was a big fear of mine for the longest time. I don't know why. I don't know if maybe someone kind of implanted that little seed in my head or if I saw a story. I really cannot dig down deep and figure out why I had that fear, but I had that fear. So I decided I don't want to go to college and get a degree in dance because just in case something happens to me, I need to have a fallback. And that was kind of my path. And my, my ballet teacher said, why don't you look into physical therapy? Because I had never met an athletic trainer. And I said, okay, maybe I can bridge the two worlds together. Yeah. And as I interned at a PT clinic that senior year to see if I actually might like that profession, that's where I met the assistant athletic trainer to the Radio City Rockettes working in the same clinic that I interned. And that was my eye-opening calling moment. See, that's so funny to me because, like, most athletes never think anything will ever happen to them. I know. Yeah. I had that little cloud over my head like I just felt so lucky to never have an injury that I was like how can I how can this not happen to me right and so I just was always so scared of that and I think just I always grew up wanting to be an independent woman and the thought of ever not being able to support myself because because of, of a career-ending injury was a fear that I had so that was kind of the the initiation of how I started to look outside of the world of dance really cool yeah no, mine is you, much Marissa? different yeah. than that. <laughs> Not for sure. In the sense that I actually did play a lot of other sports. So it's kind of one of those. Dance was always there. Gymnastics was always there for me. And those were my main focus. But I grew up with all brothers. So it was always going outside and playing basketball, being required to catch the football, throw the football, do other things, and still be one of the boys. Because oddly enough, you need another player. Um, so for me, then when I was in high school, I actually was dancing and doing gymnastics, but I had really gotten a close relationship with my athletic trainer. She had taught my sports medicine class, and that's kind of what transitioned me into this sense of, oh, wait, I really like what she does. And she was the one that kind of brought on, well, you know, you can mesh both of those worlds, and there's kind of this new up-and-coming performing arts athletic training field. Mm -hmm. And it was always for me just this idea that I can combine what I love and what I want to do in one field. But I knew I was never going to be kind of the all-star athlete growing up. So it was kind of like, for me, it was just a good balance. And that's really what pushed me in that direction. It's interesting because it almost seems like, yeah, before you guys even knew that, or at the early stages of getting into the career of athletic training, you guys both kind of had the idea of like this dance medicine idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I always realized it was such an underserved population. There was never... No one, and I, maybe that's another reason why I had that worry of a career-ending injury because the care for the performing artist was never visible to me. It was always, they push, 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 and once they fall, they fall. And the recovery was never highlighted for me growing up, so I'm wondering if that also could have been the influence as to why I had that fear. What do you mean it wasn't highlighted to you? I just feel like it was never shown on media. It was never, you never really heard the big comeback stories. In dance. In dance. Yeah. So it was always just, oh, they had a great career, but I'm bummed, done. Yeah. And there was never that comeback where you get that with a lot of athletes. There's always the comeback. There's the rehab. There's the big triumphant moment. And that was not highlighted highlighted many years ago uh, in the arts in general. It was more of just when it's over, it's over. Even still to this day, I feel like that stands true in the sense that every time there's an ESPN highlight story, it's who got hurt last season and how are they coming back and they're great on the field again this season and what do we expect from them? Mm -hmm. If you look at performing arts, if you have the ballet produced this year, well, maybe someone's not in the cast from last year, but no one knows why. Yeah. And no one will ever know like, oh, maybe they are actually rehabbing an injury and will be back next season bigger, better, and stronger than they ever were. But Correct. it's not something that is in the limelight and is ever really seen kind of to the mainstream public. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Interesting point. Mm -hmm. um, so what other sports have you guys covered 
other than dance, like leading out, like just throughout your clinical experience uh, as athletic trainers? Pretty much all of them. I mean, football, men's lacrosse was one of my affils during college. I went to Stony Brook University for my athletic training degree. And to be with the men's lacrosse team for an entire season was such a gift. I learned so much from them. Um, As a sport, I fell in love with the sport even more. And just that team in itself really taught me a lot because my director held me very accountable for my work. So I kind of acted as an athletic trainer instead of just a student athletic trainer. It was a huge amazing experience. Women's basketball, men's basketball, wrestling, pretty much everything down the gamut. Jiu-jitsu at Empire State Games, gymnastics. Yeah, pretty much the line. Kind of everything. Yeah, Yeah, I definitely did the same kind of mainstream athletes as well, kind of looking at football, lacrosse. Um, I did a lot with softball and track and field, which was definitely eye-opening for me. Uh Um, It's not something I ever really did. And Track and field and cross country was kind of that main jumping point for me that I never realized how similar track and field athletes and sprinters are compared to dancers. And if there's ever an athlete that you're going to compare a body to a body, you would never think it. But that's the comparison in my mind. It's always just been they're so in tuned with their bodies that they know exactly what they need to do to produce the right motion. And mentality. They have very Mm -hmm. similar mentalities as well. Can you dive deeper into that? Like why – why are they so familiar? Because it's like you're on your feet constantly like that? or I think it's the solidarity in the sport, first mm-hmm. of all. and then, But then also having to work as a collective in the team. For some reason, that seems to kind of flow and have a common ground between the two elements of dance and track. I also think it's because they have that um, endurance style sport, their training and their body intuition is very similar to the dance style of training, I guess, and that dancer, dancer mentality. And they also, I don't know, they kind of like live in this, this little bubble, I guess is the way to say, like their world of athleticism is like this little, they carry it around with them in a very similar sense. I guess I'm at a loss of words how to explain it. Yeah. So, I mean, I would basically say the same thing and just saying that like, for me, I always noticed specifically my shorter distance runners and then kind of forgetting about that mid gap, but then, then looking at my cross country runners, that they just have this mentality that they know exactly what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, and what source of energy they need to put into it. So whether it's a sprinter, they're sprinter day in, day out. That's what they do. They know specifically when they're in their starting blocks exactly how things should feel. And when things don't feel right, they're, I even just see it from an injury prevention kind of standpoint mm-hmm. that they know and they can tell you, you know what, this just feels off today. Right. Any other athlete would be like, I'm just having a bad day. They could tell you exactly to the inch where it is on their body. Correct. Um, which I think is just a specificity and awareness of what they do. And I think they take their craft so seriously that it's not necessarily about brute strength. It's more the fine-tuned muscle that gets them their success. So it's mm-hmm. not made by, oh, I can throw something as far as possible or I can do this. It's I need to be able to have a perfect form in order to optimize my speed to get to an end point. And I think the same thing with dancers is they look at a show in that kind of same idea and that's what really makes them successful right just like a quarter inch of off of a turnout can Mm -hmm. throw an entire form off and that's that's how the athlete isn't how in tune they are with their body it's interesting because it's almost like to reach the highest level of dance Mm -hmm. or of their sport if you're a sprinter you have to it's all about yeah like that fine tuning Mm -hmm. finesse type movement so like you almost have to be in tune with like every square inch of your body to be successful so it should make sense that when something's feeling off they can tell you like yep it's like right here or Mm -hmm. whatever exactly Um, and kind of speaking to the culture of dance we talked a little bit about how when you, you know a dancer might receive an injury and then you never hear about him or her for you know forever uh and what about injuries so what what about injuries in dance and like you said they're fine-tuned. They could tell you exactly where it is, but, like, what pressures exist to dance through injuries or dance, you know? So dancers have this very tough mentality, and for the longest time it's almost been that old adage where you just push through and you get it done. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that kind of counts back to the sense of no matter what the injury is, I'm going to finish doing what I'm doing, and then I'll deal with it. And if I choose to deal with it, then I'll go to the right source of care. But with that care not always being there, it's kind of been, I just deal with it. And this is part of dancing, that my body's going to hurt. It's going to kind of be 
this tough sport where right. not only physically but mentally challenging that I'm just got to push through. And in order to make it to where I want to be, everyone's dealt with the back pain, the knee pain, the ankle pain, that aches and sores that you see kind of dancers just walking around with that on stage. They have this perfect posture and smile on their face. But really that's a gritting down. I may be in a lot of pain. Right. And it's just the culture over time has been to push through. That was the environment that I was in growing up. There was really never conversation around injury or conversation around pain. And the only time that anyone ever really went to a physician for any type of pain, it was when it was pretty much too late or just way further down the line of where that injury could have been potentially diagnosed and rehabilitated prior to. And there was definitely no prevention methods for myself when I was growing up as a dancer. There were no strength classes. There was no form of cross training. That really wasn't the deal at all. So so uh, that's that's the dancer mentality. I do see a definite shift, though, over the last few years in performance and obviously performance care where there is a conversation about injuries and health and wellness and prevention and knowing you don't have to push through this. You can deal with this now so it doesn't become that career-ending injury. And is that because athletic trainers like you are more immersed in I believe, so. I believe so. And I believe that there are a lot more physicians as well. There's a lot of just healthcare professionals in general that are focusing now on the performing arts and have more of a voice and thankful to social media and the internet as well, being able to share our stories and then dancers themselves seeing it out there. I also think the mainstream availability now, like the TV shows, like Dancing with the Stars, mm -hmm. um, we had one of those athletes to tear her Achilles on Dancing with the Stars. Like what, live? Like yeah. live, yeah. Did mm -hmm. you finish it? No, no, she couldn't finish. She couldn't finish the show. Wait, who was it? Um, the volleyball player. Ugh. Oh. I won't be able to help you. The so blonde. I, th I think I could picture her. Yes. All right. It'll come to me. Let me guess. She's tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a volleyball player. The and beach she volleyball player? Yes. <sighs> we all know who we we're talking about. We all know who about. we're talking yes, about. That is yeah. their name. All right, well. Can we edit that I'll out? Put in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so she tore her Achilles. And the funny thing is that year, this is a great story. That year, the Radio City Rockettes performed on Dancing with the Stars. Our head athletic trainer for the Radio City Rockettes traveled with the girls, obviously, to the Dancing with the Stars show to prep them for the show and do everything that an athletic trainer does. And that was the same year that uh, she had torn her Achilles. And so our director had a conversation with the producers at Dancing with the Stars and basically said to them, this is the reason why she tore her Achilles. She's a beach volleyball player and is never performing in heels. And you have this girl now dancing in heels and then flats and then heels and then flats. She just wasn't prepared, most likely, for this. And, and to have an athletic trainer on site could have helped, potentially helped prevent that injury. So it's those types of things. So A, I think it's the mainstream site now that dancers are athletes and that they're and they're getting injured on these shows so then people are seeing that as well so now they're and then they're seeing the potential care that's being provided for them it's never really quality because us athletic trainers that are watching it are getting angry that we're not there on the sidelines however it's bringing light to the fact that you do get injured it's okay to get injured there can be a comeback you can be cared for so i think that that has shifted also the conversation uh as far as dance injuries go and dancers not feeling that they have to just keep pushing through that they can be treated all right and you've you said that there's been a culture shift because of the introduction to more dance medicine professionals mm -hmm. yeah um in the industry 100 <clears> percent. <throat> can you give us a little background on where you know these professionals, like when, when dance medicine became a thing. Absolutely. Because uh, I, until I met you guys, I didn't know it was like a, a field. Right. Great. And a lot of people don't realize that it is as extensive as it is. And they'll see some highlights kind of here and there of where we are. But then once you really get start talking like we did today, you kind of realize how long it's been around. So athletic training really started in Las Vegas, of course. Um, started in the early to mid-1990s um, with Cirque being the only really true organization that kind of yeah, staffed they were high athletic, athletic therapists. They were called athletic therapists at the time, and they also would bring in some, um, some physiotherapists from overseas as well. So that was where the introduction came in in the performing arts. And then also a shout-out to Steve McCauley. So he's an athletic trainer based out in Las Vegas, and he, in the mid-90s, 
Ladies as well was able to place a lot of athletic trainers in local venues to be on site and actually provide care to the performers. And Steve McCauley also has done a lot to advance the profession legally in the state of Las Vegas and also in the in National Athletic Training Organization as well. And then it developed through. So mid-90s, then also there was um, the NATA started to actually recognize performing arts in 2007. And that was the actual committee was called the Council of Employment, Clinical, Industrial, and Corporate Committee began recognizing performing arts as uh, its own department and its own style of care in the organization. So that was kind of the onset of it. And then that community of athletic trainers really just stuck tight and true and pushed forward and forged on forward to bring more awareness to this style of care and help out anyone that they could. I know Blue Man Group was a first company to have an athletic, one of the first companies to have an athletic trainer, and that was developed by our athletic trainer at Radio City. Elaine Winslow Redman is the head athletic trainer at the Rockettes. She was a Rockette dancing in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. got injured, and the physician told her, she basically sprained an ankle, and the physician told her, oh, you can't dance for six weeks. And she said, well, my show ends in six weeks, so that's not going to work for me. And same thing, was provided no care and said there is a gap in performance care and went back to school and researched different professions of medicine that she felt would best benefit the performing artist and athletic training was the one and marissa and i can also thank her for being mentors in our career as well so how'd you link up with her to like with elaine yeah um when i was interning at that physical therapy clinic i met the assistant athletic trainer to the to the rockettes so she was elaine's assistant her name is meg schneider she was it was like an off-season time so that's why she was working at the pt clinic because it was just a seasonal job for the three months of the show run rehearsals and the show run and so i met her and then she basically said oh you're a dancer oh you're interested in sports medicine let me take you under my wing and that was my introduction and i swear when i understood because when I went into physical therapy I thought of the type of care that I was going to be giving performers was the type of care athletic trainers provide but I didn't even know an athletic trainer existed I didn't know what that profession was and so once I I I was introduced to that I was like oh my goodness this is it and I luckily was going to Stony Brook University and they have an awesome athletic training program really my ducks just kind of lined up I was really lucky to be in the right place at the right time and the ducks lined up really well and I just kept on riding that path (laughs) it's funny you say that because I say all the time like a lot of how I got involved in performing arts was right place right time yeah just don't be afraid to reach out and talk to people and that's what I tell any athletic trainer coming out of school like if you have a job that you want or is there a career path you see yourself wanting to go down just ask someone and that's totally how I got involved I basically blind shotted Monica and said like hey I really want to learn more about being in the performing arts and right out of grad school I'd worked at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy just kind of helping out with their summer intensives and I went to NATA conference that year like I would any other year and Elaine was speaking and I went up to her after and I said hey I'm a new athletic trainer trying to really get involved in the performing arts in New York City and I said I was wondering if I could take you to lunch and I can just kind of pick your brain well pick your brain ended up a job interview. A job interview <laughs> and a job interview ended up me starting three weeks later. Um, so super exciting. And then from there, it kind of evolved into us kind of furthering our relationship and kind of growing into helping as many populations as possible. And that's what we talked about earlier, just saying totally. that there is really no tried and true. I'm in one place the entire year. We bounce around and we help as many people as possible. So even if that means there's a show touring through, we'll all get a call and say, hey, is there any way someone can go staff this show? The same way people don't think twice about, can you cover a football game on Randall's Island? Can you cover the Cirque tent that's also out there because we don't necessarily have someone flying out with them? Um, So it's really kind of community, Yeah, that we kind of reach out and branch out to each other. Yeah, it's cool. And just hearing the history of dance medicine, hearing how you guys both got into it, I just think of like pioneers. Like, you know, yes, yes. you think of a, a problem and you Where, go after it, yeah. you take action and the ducks, you know, kind of fall, kind of in, fall a row in a row when you take action. That's right? exactly yeah. that's exactly how our careers have kind of planned out. And same thing. So then I I always wanted to start a program. I'm, I saw Elaine start this amazing program, and I was like, I'm going to do this. So I was ready. I had a business plan through college, and I was ready to start an athletic training program in the arts no matter where it began. And then the opportunity to start the program for the Knicks came up in 2009. And so I was ready. I had that plan ready. All I had to do was just plug in the organization, figure out budgeting. I luckily had Elaine as a mentor, and they were also – because the Knicks and Radio City are all in the same organization, it was good because they had that 
company, Radio City's athletic training program established to kind of look at as, as a bouncing off feed. So I wasn't coming in there blindly and saying, I want to do X, Y, and Z. They understood how that worked. And they also understood that Elaine was running a program like the Knicks. She was running a program just like their pro sports teams. Right. And they were treating their athletes and their dancers with just the same care. So when the Knicks City Dancers, their director was like, how do I take care of my performing artists? I don't want to deal with these injuries anymore. I, wa I want none of this headache anymore. How do I get someone to do what you're doing? Elaine called me up because she knew that I was ready for that program plan. And I was like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about uh, a Dancing with the Stars injury with a, an Achilles, but what are the most common injuries in dance? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you said before they're – the sports are kind of similar to sprinters and cross country and stuff like that. So like what is the injuries kind of similar as well or very similar mm -hmm. majority of injuries are overuse injuries. So your strains and your sprains and those are your most common lower. It's not even just lower extremity anymore. It's upper extremity. It's total body. A lot of times people will associate dance injuries with just foot and ankle, but they're using their entire bodies. Concussions are a big deal in athletic training mm -hmm. with performing artists. You would really? be surprised. Yeah. What kind of scenarios? Props. Um, flips gone, flips awry. gone wrong. Um, um, even choreography gone wrong. Someone in a precision style dance will turn, and the next person will turn at the wrong time and smack them in the head. Mm -hmm. uh, I have had just falls, straight up slips and falls, and they'll hit their head directly on the floor tricks stunts they'll flip each other and yeah. drop someone on their head <laughs> well i guess in that like you hear about cheerleading and all the same. concussions exactly. and cheerleading yeah it same. sounds like exactly the same similar mechanisms i had an uh one of my dancers had an acl tear last season right before the season started so it was a season ending injury but she's back up and running and doing an amazing job this year. So full recovery. So that's been our big triumphant story. And the Nick City Dancers have actually highlighted that in their media as well. So they're showing that comeback. And it's so exciting. I love it. Yeah, exactly what you kind of Exactly what I do, wanted. Yeah. I think the other thing that we always like to point out is that, yes, everyone always kind of thinks about lower extremity injuries. But for me, especially when I deal with a lot more um, break dancers and stunters, their shoulders and their arms mm -hmm. are actually their legs. So 98% of what they're doing is in a handstand position. So Correct. all of these flips and tricks are, think of your shoulder as being your hip and your wrists as being your ankles, which I know I had kind of that big adjustment. And especially even talking to our doctors and stuff, I'm like, remember what they do? And they're like, we never see this kind of injury. I'm like, well, because not everyone lives in that position is asking the joint to do something another joint in their body does. So I know that's also kind of this frame of reference when we tell people like, nope, that happens, that that's what you have to think about. It's not always I'm walking and my two feet are on the ground, that my feet may never be on the ground and right. it's always my hands. Marissa is serving a huge population, underserved population, I should say, of hip-hop dancers and stunt crew. These guys are the street performers that you see here in New York City. They're the ones that you're seeing in the subways. subways. They actually were just, just on Ellen. They so were just on Ellen, her hype team. Yeah, yesterday they did a whole shout-out to the Waffle crew of New York City that Ellen brought them on because they all perform on subways. So they hop on and off the subways all day long. You'll see them in Times Square. I laugh. There's times I'll cut through Times Square and I'll see them and I'll just kind of make eye contact and they just <laughs> wink and laugh and know uh, she saw us. We kind of know what's going on. But that's also a big thing as we talk about performers don't just perform when they're in our care. Yeah. So we have to understand that, yeah, you're also doing this on a moving subway. You're also doing this on a street, on cement in the winter, in the winter, performing for other people. That's what they do for a living and that's what they find enjoyment out of. So I laughed. I thought about this this morning when I was on my way up here. If you were to ever ask a football player or any other athlete to go willingly to practice after practice, what do you think their response would be? Hell no. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And for us, we'll have dancers dance from 9 in the morning till 5 o'clock, which is their required rehearsal time. And then they'll willingly go to a Broadway dance center and, and take, a take a class just for fun because to them, it's still dancing and doing their craft, but they're finding more enjoyment out of it. So it's not the work side of it. It's the, the fun release. play emotional release. So that's where we talk about all these overuse injuries. Is we have to scale them back a lot. And that's the education and the conversation that we end up having to consistently have, unfortunately, at times with performers. So that right. seems like it presents a unique challenge to the sport of dance. A hundred percent. hundred percent. So how do you guys try to combat that? Just A lot of education, a lot of 
trust. We have to gain their Mm -hmm. trust, obviously, so that they can understand what we're saying and listen to what we're saying, um, trying to show them the bigger picture, trying to remind them that this is their one body and, and it's, it's not going to last forever if they keep grinding it into the ground and just giving them as many examples as we possibly can with science and research. And I give them a lot of clear information to show them if you keep doing X, Y, and Z, you're going to fail. If you follow this plan and understand what recovery means for you, then you will have a longer career and we will prevent injuries. And the other thing too is being able to have now 10 years under, under the belt of, of experience, just showing, hey, look, it worked for that person. So just understand that you can follow this same path and it'll work for you. Right. So there are like Tom Brady's of the world who uh, mm-hmm. of the dance world who kind of have had long careers. And like, yes. So what's their secret? Uh, I think a lot of times it also is that meant for dance body. So you have your your superstars like Barishnikov and you have your superstars like uh, who else? It'll come to me. They have these huge, huge, huge long careers. And I believe that it also a was the time frame they had. Bershnikov had like forty to fifty years uh, of experience. Oh, Lucia Chase. She was the founder of the American Ballet Theater, and she danced for forty to fifty years. Uh huh. Yeah. So What's- I do think that individual bodies, like Michael Phelps, is made to swim. I do think that there are individual bodies that are made to dance and just have that resilience. Um, I also think that. The culture has also changed. I believe that they were in a time frame where they had downtime of rehearsals and experiences. And whereas now in this culture, we're always filling time and filling space. So your overuse injuries, I think, do escalate, if that makes sense. It's all compounded, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Previously, it was, I'm either dancing or I'm not dancing. And more in that season-like. A season-like style, style. of training where, where rest time was kind of built into their, into their schedules. Um, I don't. I think that it's definitely decreased now as that rest period time. Everyone's filling and filling and filling. And now um, I also feel like a lot of times when they have, when our performers have that downtime, they feel the need to go out and book another gig. And fill so it. So what would normally be my downtime and rest from my mainstream or main basically performance style, I'm going to fill it with something else. So whether that be commercial booking, side performances, just kind of always being active and dancing. And is that like just to survive and like make money? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I was going to add that, that that really is just also a survival tactic. So it's something that we take into account when we're evaluating our performers and onboarding them is to get their full life experience and their full life picture down so that we understand all of the elements that are contributing to their training. So, I mean, we talk a lot about sports specialization on this podcast. Yes. And it's I kind just of listened like to that topic. the other day. Yeah. So it's kind of the topic that we're talking about right now. And, you know, dance, I'm assuming is a very competitive industry to be successful at and to like get to a level where you're making money that you can, you know, have a sustainable uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So like how replaceable are you? So say you, you make it to the top and you know, now you get hurt. Yeah. We're we're looking for the comeback, but like, is there someone just waiting for you to take your spot that might, you know, just like in the football or whatever. It's the same culture. Someone is always right there writing to take your spot, unfortunately. So I do think that that is a big fear. That used to be the big fear why everyone would push through. But like I said, I do believe the culture is changing where people are realizing that there's things that they can do to continue their longevity of their career. And it's what we advocate for on a consistent basis. And that's a big reason why I do what I do is to give a performer the longest career that they can possibly have. And I think we talk about the whole saying of someone's waiting in the wings is literally a performer's lifestyle. If someone is waiting in the wing that knows your exact role and what you're supposed to do on that stage, and the minute you can't perform, they are there to jump in. So that person is physically Physically waiting waiting in in the the wings wings for you to fail, Mm -hmm. and they'll jump right in. So that connotation of push through really meant someone is breathing down my neck, Mm -hmm. ready for me to be replaced. And yes, we talk about you are this elite dancer, and you may be special in that one point, but... There's a million other dancers waiting for that same shot. Right. So what are some of the worst injuries that you've seen? We talked about concussions. We talked about um, even upper body injuries, the Achilles and dancing mm-hmm. with the stars. Mm-hmm. What's the worst? You know, I obviously don't say their name, but like <laughs> what was the worst injury that you've seen in dance? I've or the most like career altering? 
Oh, career altering. Um, I think, hmm. you know, it's kind of hard to say that oh, I, I have one. haven't really had anyone that's had a career altering. I mean, obviously, other than our Achilles tendons and those kind of season ending things, nothing's really dramatically changed someone's career. Again, I haven't been in the field as long as you, so you may have more say on kind of this I got more dramatized injury. So um, I had a performer that actually dislocated their hip and it it was a subluxation and but partial dislocation because it didn't fully go back in and they kept dancing. <laughs> Sounds extremely painful. It was wild. Well, there that was a, a sh- true case of showing adrenaline can completely take over your body. So they had uh, that hip dislocation on stage and they kind of jolted themselves a little bit and then adrenaline kept going and they kept on dancing and then once they stepped off the stage then their body kind of went into shock and they actually are now back to dancing not full time as a professional but that recovery was pretty interesting because we went through many different options of surgeries because they had you know significant labral tear and other tissue damage so going through the options of the different surgery styles to help this performer but still maintain their athletic ability was extremely interesting and a huge learning experience. Dislocating your hip is like really hard to do, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. extremely, extremely hard difficult. to do. What the do. hell are they doing? To it, <laughs> it literally a bot, a grand batma. I have no idea what that. Stand is. on one leg and <laughs> kick, kick the, the other, other one, one and the force was just good enough on the standing leg. It was almost like an Achilles plant and twist type of style. The physics were just right at that solid moment and they dislocated their hip. Crazy. crazy the force generated with that kick must have been like insane watch exactly. out and that's what <laughs> kind of just shows that you can say like they are so strong physically and yeah. the forces they produce to do what they do is obviously that powerful. is intense mm-hmm. on our nfl injury report podcast that we do a lot of times we talk about this idea i don't know if it's like really true or backed by science but it's just like a idea that we have that mm-hmm. these guys are just like so strong and they produce so much force with their bodies that like their joints just like aren't meant to handle that that kind of force production no 100 percent. yeah no the body's not meant to, no. to hold that <laughs> so how do you guys approach injury prevention in dance i know you guys take more of a holistic you know view of things so can you guys kind of break down how you approach injury prevention yes and no i think we do implement a lot of traditional styles of injury prevention for for our athletes um we are fortunate to pre-screen all of our performers annually at least both on our respective teams and as a whole so we can collectively gather a lot of information on these performers and get their whole story from beginning to end and upon that pre-screening evaluation so they get tested obviously musculoskeletal um strength and conditioning, musculoskeletal flexibility. We look for functional movement. So we take them through specific functional movements based on dance movements. and So not different from the functional movement screen. Correct. Different from the functional movement Correct. screen. Correct. We've developed it. It's based off of that with similar, obviously all the similar science because the body is the body. Um, but then we just move it into specific ways that they're going to be using their body. So we'll do things a little bit more in a turnout position for a specific style of dance. We'll do things in a parallel position for your, maybe your more hip hop style of dance. So we'll change it for the style of dancer that we're working with. And then looking for obviously any functional patterns that can predispose them to injury. So, and from there, then we give them strength and conditioning programs that are specific for that person so that they can hopefully prevent their future injuries that's a lot and, and it's yeah. on it's on the dancer to do those exercises on their own or is there like a lot of time that's like yes and it's no a mix yeah. we both provide so i i provide strength and conditioning classes twice a week to the nick city dancers and that's it's not mandatory so it's optional for them to come and take my class so that i can see and work with them one-on-one but i do check in with them consistently enough that we know if they're following their protocol or not following their protocols Right. And I think the biggest thing for that is we, even if we may only provide care once, twice a week, it is that we're seeing them all the time at games and we're noticing things. Um, Right. One thing I also do in addition to that functional movement screen is I really break down their choreography. One cool Mm -hmm. thing we have going for us is our coach is also one of our main choreographers. So it's easy for me to look at what their dance is and almost build their strengthening programs off of the moves that they're required to do. So when we talk about changing that FMS kind of functional movement screen, I literally just take what I see most relevant in their choreography and understand what 
the mobility and motion should really look like and then prepare them for that so that they're successful in what they're doing. It's not, yeah, great, you're really strong, but then I'm asking you to do something totally different. Right. And I think this will give the listeners a whole new appreciation for, you know, the halftime dance crew or the dancers that they see (laughs) in Broadway just because, like, the amount of time and everything that goes into yes. getting mm-hmm. them out on the stage. That minute and a half on the court takes a lot to go into it. It's unreal. It yes. really is. And they make it look easy and like it's no big deal. And that's the point is they make it look easy and like it's, it's no, no big, big deal. deal. But it's really hard. And that's why they're professionals because they're achieving that. And you're just entertained. And that's the exactly. whole point. And we have a joke that kind of no matter what you do, you have to do a minute and a half full out sprint and then walk off. With a smile with on ha- your face yeah. and look like you're not even out of breath. So you're not supposed to sweat and you're not supposed to be out of breath. And no. that's the image you have to give off. But <laughs> any other sport, it's perfectly acceptable to do that all out sprint and kind of just collapse right then and there. Yeah. Where we're like, nope, you got to smile and you got to make it that extra 25 seconds to get back into the locker room where <laughs> no one can see you. So <laughs> it's, it's the it truth. Backwards and crazy to hear, and yeah. sounds totally ridiculous, but... So that goes part into the training as well. It's an added challenge. Exactly. Uh Like hold your breath or something (laughs) like that. Um, So are there unique challenges to the sport of dance when it comes to uh, returning to play, returning to dance after injury? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I would talk about basically saying there's always an added component that we have to worry about. So not only are we getting you to be able to dance, we also have to put you on stage where there's lights and sounds and costuming restrictions that can limit your movement. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. we talk about this all the time and it's another thing that people don't take into consideration. We have to change the way we treat people just so that it can also look good. We can't have someone completely bound up with tape and bruising due to treatments when they have to go out on stage and perform and you don't want to see that because it doesn't kind of work with costuming um so I know we talk about even specifically with our concussion return to play after you go through what everyone else does is your concussion return to play and you are fully capable of physically physically exerting exerting yourself to get through the motion we have to make sure you can spin around in circles you can do it in a dark room and you can do it with a light shining brightly on you and loud and loud noises going on things moving and what could just be yes I'm walking in a straight line but I'm walking in a straight line on an elevator that's raising me up 10 feet and a spotlight on me the entire time with a band drumming Right. So that's like a lot of stimulation. Exactly. There's a lot of outside stimulation that goes into, okay, so, so I could feel confident, but then if you're the littlest bit uneasy or on edge, it could throw off everything else. And there's a person right next exactly, to me. Exactly. I was just going to say there's a safety factor that you have to worry about for everyone else alongside of that yeah. athlete. It's not just them, it's everybody that's involved. Right. Because if they can't pull it together, then they're not, they're messing up the people they're messing next up to them. Exactly. Next to them. And then it also could lead to further injury. Like I said, another concussion, precision style dancing. Someone's not turning at the same time, and now you just got whacked in the head by the other person. And now I'm dealing with two. Two, yeah. Yes. <laughs> now we have two. And it's kind of that domino effect of if one person doesn't hold their own, the line is not as good as it should be. Yeah. I rode crew at Rutgers for my first year when I was there. Oh, amazing. I was terrible. (laughs) But (laughs) that's kind of what I'm thinking of Mm -hmm. just because if one guy's off, the whole boat's off and you ruin everything. That is the – yes, very, very similar. I was generally the one ruining everything. (laughs) 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 Just keep me on the erg. I could could crush the the practice part. but. And then Uh, actually just to piggyback off of that, so talking about the holistic side of things, it's the whole picture for injury prevention. There's nutrition counseling involved with these performers. Like I said, we're taking inventory of all of their life's scheduling as well I'll even I'll even sit down because if a performer is telling me that they don't have time to cross train or time to implement Mm -hmm. these prevention protocols I will literally sit with them and go what does Monday look like what does Tuesday look like okay guess what you can fit it in here you can fit this in here it doesn't have to be this whole thing I'm going to break it down here's your program broken down into three 10 minute increments so I make it easy easy like no excuses whatsoever and like we said nutrition is involved as well we'll have I have performers, some are corporate America women who are sitting Mm -hmm. at a desk majority of the day and then they'll dance in the evenings and then they're dancing on the courts. And then the other half will be fitness professionals that are teaching classes all day long and then going to dance and perform on their own. So there's many different elements that we're taking into play here. It's a ton of volume, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any bit of like body image, you know, stuff that goes into this just because like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you see dancers and they're usually like, 
you know, big muscles, not big muscles, but like toned, they're fit, toned, toned like right. very athletic looking. Yeah. But in any sport, you know, when you have to do a lot of strength training and stuff like that, you know, where's the line that, you know, do these ladies, you know, have or have an yeah. yeah. It depends on the show. It depends mm-hmm. on where they're performing. Sometimes it depends on the director. Sometimes it depends preference. on the year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we go through and we laugh a lot of times. It's, you know what, this is the look we're going for this year. And this is the vibe we're trying to create. This is the body you have to kind of fit, fit the, role the role of. And that's what we say. It's a lot, even just talking, not necessarily with dancers, but any performer in the Broadway aspect. There are times you can even look at actors on stage where you have to gain 50 pounds. You have to lose 50 pounds just to fit the role. And that is this entertainment business is that there is kind of this image we want to project and you have to make yourself fit that image. Correct. Does that kind of influence, have you ever seen that may possibly influence injuries? A hundred percent. Yes. Unfortunately. And more so when I first started, when I was still gaining the trust of the directors, et cetera. um, I think that they, they would put the girls, you know, on a, on, on a weight probation I mean what's the word probation there we go like on a weight probation or something like that and they then wouldn't communicate to me what was going on and I would kind of figure it out halfway through and that was because they were now just sustaining overuse injuries or I noticed a a drop in weight an unhealthy form and they just looked unhealthy Mm -hmm. and so that was hard for me in the very beginning unfortunately dealing with that and then in time gaining everybody's trust I've been able to be the first line of defense when it came to they need to change their body image for this job. And I will always never allow it to be performed in an unsafe manner. Um, And 99% of the time, the body image change is going to coincide with the fact that I need them to strengthen up and get prepared for their, for they're probably not as strong as they need to be for this job and for this role. So it works out now hand in hand um, to hopefully prevent injury and never let them be in an unsafe position. Really cool. Yeah. So, Take us through like before a performance. Yeah. Is there like a warm up that's uh, totally involved? Or, all right. So take us through like what that would look like. So basically, everyone kind of starts their day in a little bit of a different manner. Some people have tried and true that they do the exact same thing, very ritualistic based, in just the sense that they come in and they are gonna get on the treadmill or get on the bike for ten minutes, physically warm up. Go through some strengthening exercises. Um, You'll always see kind of inevitably everyone laying on the floor at one point doing some core, just kind of engaging work. Mm -hmm. Um, Also in regards to treatment, a lot of – we have it ingrained in a lot of their – in their kind of daily motions that you have to prepare for whatever could happen. And that's the biggest thing. It's not I'm just going out to do one thing. There could be in an aspect of a show, I'm tapping for this point and then I'm putting on heels and then I'm going to sneakers and I'm going to be asked to kind of roll around on the ground and then I have to tumble. So it's preparing your body in every different aspect of that. Um, So we do a lot of prophylactic taping. So we'll do a lot of arch taping for these performers. They may not be having any type of foot and ankle pain or injury, but just looking at their functional anatomy, they need a little bit of extra support because now they're going from, like Marissa said, the heel to the flat to the different shoes. And that's going to affect, obviously, their their output of their musculature and their tissue. So those are the prevention methods we'll then put in place. For myself, I've also developed um, a dynamic warm-up that the girls do for their Mm -hmm. rehearsals, especially the game days can be a little tricky just because of timing sometimes and rehearsals can can push timing off and 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 I feel like that gets thrown to the side at times if I'm not on like the sides yelling at them but um but that's a big thing is the prophylactic taping and the prevention methods that we put into place for game day situations what does prophylactic mean prevention prevention okay <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm sure someone out there was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I of hope course. So. I'm sure. <laughs> prophylactic taping is any of that kind of just general taping you see that's just to make sure nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like tape your ankle exactly. before a football game. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly okay. it. So we'll do that. And then obviously if there are we are dealing with any injuries or treatments that are involved manual treatments prior to taping or bracing that are necessary for that protocol and then costuming on top. So the taping that we'll use, obviously, like Marissa had pointed out earlier, skin tone. And it's cool. We're working with a bunch of different companies now that are changing and because it always used to be just tan. No one's just tan. There's all these different colors of skin tone, different shades. And now um, we've been, our performing arts community has really, every every NATA (laughs) 
convention, we are like at those taping tables, like, when are you going to change the tape? When are you going to give us more colors? And now they are evolving and they're providing different shades of colors and tones for these performers, yeah. which is huge. We've really? been able to kind of pull up different shades of tights and send them this and be like, these are the color swatches. Try and match them as close as possible. And yeah. it's been pretty cool. We've gotten a few and it's just nice. Even though performers appreciate it more. It feels like they're more cared for. That they have something that matches them. Yeah. And it's not everyone is the same tan beige cream colored. No. That doesn't match anyone. So yeah, we get to trips and tricks and tips on how to kind of hide their stuff. Mm-hmm. Once again, pioneers in the industry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so we talked about, you know, before the performance, but what about after the performance for kind of like post-performance recovery or whatever? Oh, yes. yes. Big time. Radio City has um, a huge, amazing, and they have a full standing athletic training room on site with cold tubs and a full gym. So for them, it's awesome. These performers can then come after their last show, get on that elliptical for a 10-minute cool down, myofascial release, foam rolling afterwards, static stretching, some dynamic movement as well, and then they'll plunge for 10 minutes. Um, And I think that that's a big reason why those performers can get through their show time. For us, it's more of a cool down process. So I have like... (laughs) For my girls, they have a cool-down committee. So there's a few <laughs> girls that actually run the cool-down after their rehearsals. They jog around the studio. They do their myofascial release, and they do that whole protocol. Um, game days can tend to be a little bit more iffy. It's not They're not dancing as much on game days. It's a little bit stop and go. So our cool-down process is much shorter and, and not as formed as after, like, a four-hour rehearsal. And same for you guys. Ours is the exact same, yeah. yeah. On rehearsal days, obviously, it's more of that structured kind of practice setting and – Yes, there's a very diligent cool down that occurs. But on game day, it's kind of we left. It's a free for all. And at 11 o'clock at night after a basketball game, no one wants to be there any longer than yeah. the next person. So it's kind of. It's much different than a performance. So a Broadway yeah. show is structured. They're always going to start and end the same way. Whereas on an NBA dance dance team, each night is different and every evening is different and they kind of end on different notes. So right. we just go with the flow when it comes to that. But recovery is a big thing that, that we're consistently talking to them about and also mindfulness practices on how they can implement recovery pr- practices into their daily rituals. And like I said, sitting with them, literally going through their schedules and saying, you can be doing this here. I don't have time after, I don't have time because my commute is an hour, so an hour and a half home. I can't cool down. Well, yeah, you can when you get home. So we're just constantly educating them to implement these prevention protocols and driving home the message that cool down is one of the biggest prevention methods that is involved with injury prevention. Like everyone doesn't realize that and it's huge. But like why? 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 That's a great question. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why it's not like I don't know why I have such a fight with this one. This one has been a challenge, and we for even me. say it. It's definitely been that exact example of someone comes up to you and they're like, "Oh, well, I commute for an hour and a half home, so by the time I get home, I'm pretty there's cold n- actually. There's no reason <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally. They're like, I'm cold. I don't need to cool down, and I'm like, No, you still need to. No matter how long after it is after the activity, it Every still produces helps. a benefit. It's ideal, obviously, to do it directly after, mm-hmm. but. but I'm like, just please give me something. Like, what does it do to the muscles that, like... The cool-down process? Yeah. Oh, so neurologically, A, you're sending... The sympathetic nervous system is now getting the messages that we're cooling everything down and that we're starting to slow things down. So it's the same idea of, if you drive, can you (laughs) throw your car into park if you haven't come to a full break? No, the gear doesn't let... doesn't go. messing it up. Exactly, like completely dropping (laughs) the transmission, whatever it is. The body is the same way. Why do we think that we can just stop right away and and not, and not mess anything up so the body is now channeled so that it's going into the recovery process so now your brain can actually start telling the cells in your body to start bringing the recovery nutrients to the tissue so now that process starts because now the body has just you know received some micro trauma from its its exercise and also then you're slowing your heart rate down slowly and gradually you're slowing your blood blood pressure down slowly and gradually it's a much more gradual descent just as much as you had a nice solid warm-up into your ascent it should be the exact same thing to come down and that then puts the body into its recovery state better cellularly mentally And um, emotionally, too, actually, because then you can just really it's just think of like a mindfulness technique when you're kind of just breathing and being still with yourself. Your body is now told, okay, we're now into going into the recovery phase as well. So it just all flows together. It's it's huge. 
That was a great explanation. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> She's got that one down pat pretty well. We know. That's I, her, that's that is her her driving thing. this home. Like, you have no idea. Because it's so big. You said so that a time big. or two before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are, I mean, and it's one of those things. You see how many people are so mindful of the warm-up process. And if you just think, it's just the reverse of that. No one's going to go out and just start sprinting or start doing whatever they want to do. Because obviously everyone's like, oh, you're going to pull a muscle. You're yeah. going to hurt yourself. But no the one thinks about the, the reverse. back end of it. And so that's what we say. It's really like everyone and all the kind of information is out there on why a warm-up is so important. And people have that down pat really well. But no one ever thinks about when I'm done. Can I share a Rockette story on the cool down situation? Yeah. yeah. So we had a Radio City Rockette. She started when she was 18 years old and she came in and this was her first professional job. She was literally in the athletic training room with a different injury every day, like every day. And f- thank goodness she listened to what we said and for about three seasons, she continuously implemented everything that we did, the warm-up, um, her taping and bracing, her postseason conditioning, her preseason conditioning. And then by her th- third year or fourth year she finally implemented the cool down after every show she was after every last show i should say she was on that elliptical she did her foam rolling she did her ice hub not one injury and the show had changed too so it wasn't even like she was doing the same thing over and over again they had added two new numbers in that that last year and she still didn't have any new injuries whatsoever so do it it works the missing piece was the cool down it was the cool down so what can other sports learn from dance medicine to prevent and treat injuries in their own respective areas? I think just paying attention to, obviously, this, the sports specific, specific specificity. Yeah. You guys are a good team. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're good we at finishing so. each other's sentences. We think so, too. Um, the sports specificity of, of their athlete and, and understanding that, you know, the body is the body, but each individual person is different as well. I think that we treat the individual athlete instead of looking at them just as dancer. They have a name, and they are going to tolerate and deal with all different instances and adversities and injuries and methods differently. And I think that that has been the greatest success of of our injury prevention and our programs. And I think that's a great way to approach your athlete. Everybody is a team, but each individual person is a person. And I think as a coach or an athletic trainer, if you're working with that individual person, you're bringing the best out of them. And then they're only going to put the best into their team. Right. How do you guys uh, kind of take into account the emotional and mental toll that injuries can take uh, to a a dancer? It's everything. Yeah. It's basically the basis of everything. And also looking at the fact that dance is an emotive art as well. So it's more than just the athleticism and the physical side of it. There is that emotional side of it. So dancers have that emotion built into them, as does any human. And I think thinking about it in the injury sense that it hurts. It's not fun. And it could kind of alter your career. And like we said, dancers are dancers. They're emotional beings to begin with breathe and live in that performing kind of I like to say sometimes dramatic they can be a little lifestyle um they speak a little bit of a different language sometimes when you think like of dance it's like an expression of emotion exactly and I think that that's where the difference is so I think uh, you've asked the similarities of dance with your traditional sports and you know this is a di- this is one of the differences is that it still is an art form. So it's not only a sport and they're not only athletes, but dance is still an art form. So there is, like Marissa was stating, there's an emotional um, tone to what they're doing. And so they can sometimes make the littlest injury can be way more dramatic. So it's a matter of just, like I said, knowing your performer and how mm-hmm. to talk to them and how to deal with them. Um, athletic trainers are always psychologists as well. Yeah. Thank God they make us take psychology courses um, as part of our accreditation. I can imagine. I mean, that's part of the reason why I started this podcast, you know, on my own. Mm-hmm. Because trying to heal my own, you know, demons that I fight in my head, mm-hmm. you know, on a, on a daily basis. So right. I'm, I know other athletes and dancers feel the same way. But have you seen, I mean, I don't know if you have any stories or anything, but, you know, it's got to be tough on the dancer when they do sustain that career-ending uh, injury. How do you guys help them with that transition or I mean it's not really necessarily your job but have you seen dancers struggle with this of course of course and 
I mean, we'll take it into our hands as far as we can. If we believe that they need further professional help that's out of our scope, we'll obviously refer on. Um, we do have a network of good sports psychologists that we can work with these performers if we, we feel that they need more help in in, in finding uh, emotional support. Just kind of guiding them. We're close to these athletes. They have our cell phone numbers, and I know mine can call me at any time, mm -hmm. and we're just there for them and, and providing them the idea of the bigger picture. And literally, it's just taking everything day by day. That's how you get through this. And so just being the person there for them is the way that we deal with it. That and also, um, I mean, we can just use the real-life examples of yeah. not only are you losing the sport aspect of your life, a lot of times these performers are also losing their job. So yeah. if you look at it kind of on that mainstream level that not only did you kind of get fired from your job, you also lost this really important aspect of your life of dance. So it's kind of really traumatizing for most of them that they are at a very big loss. And that's where we really kind of can step in and say, how can we help? Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that it's not just one aspect and, oh, I can still go about my daily life outside of here. It's really changing kind of the whole scheme of things. Just like any pro athlete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's a grieving process for anyone, and it, everyone takes different time to you know figure figure it out or what the next step is. But Absolutely. I was thinking like you guys are good set good examples for them of kind of like taking action and you know seeing what you want and making it happen so those ducks you know. Fall into around. line. Yeah. That's it. absolutely. I definitely, we definitely use our own personal experiences to hopefully be motivation for these performers. And I think that they've reciprocated that and let us know that in time, which is the beauty of what we do and kind of drives us to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up the conversation here, uh, Monica, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your company, RomoFit? I know uh, you and Marissa did a, a body ignition last night. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about those ventures you got going on. For sure. RomoFit was started um, just because I, I was actually providing some post-injury rehabilitation. So someone that sustained an injury and they went to their traditional physical therapy, and but they weren't actually brought back to the level that they can start their sport. I will work with them one-on-one, -on -one, providing them the strength and conditioning to get them back safely back to that sport and then also just your general athletic training coverages and services can be implemented through RomoFit but Marissa and I um, we I love her she <laughs> she was a gift to, to my life I have to say so her enthusiasm for athletic training has really been amazing and we partnered together to start something called body ignition so go for it Tell so everybody. basically body ignition for us was kind of creating this class or course I really it's like a workshop it. it's like a workshop it's not really this fitness based get in there expecting to kind of sweat. bust your butt and sweat it's more of learning and we coined the term put the science back in movement yeah because we see just as mainstream everyone's out there doing all of these I can do 75 burpees in a row but how many of those 75 burpees were actually true to form and just teaching people how to safely execute daily motions. So there's no benefit in strengthening your body if you're not doing it properly. Right. And yes, we give credit to everyone for trying to kind of encourage people to be physically active. But now we want to fine tune that again and say, let's be physically active in a safe and injury prevention model. So we're kind of mixing what we love about athletic training with what we love about the fitness community and right. everyone's health and wellness. And bridging also the mind, body, and life aspect and connecting all three. So we talk about mindfulness activity, setting goals that are important for your mind and your body and for your general life, and how to build practices to bring all of those together safely and ebb and flow with the life too. Like a lot of times we'll see people make these hardcore goals that are just unattainable and also they refuse to kind of move beyond them or understand that they may evolve into something else and that they think that if they didn't achieve that specific goal that they failed at that and that's not the that's not the way life works so we're bringing all of those assets into one workshop to provide people like a nice substantial way of science backing wellness that's really cool and obviously like the longer I've done this podcast the more I've embraced that kind of like mindset itself it's mm -hmm. like yeah for a football player example, like why would you go out there at like 50% of your capacity just to play hurt? Like literally, exactly. Just so you can get more hurt and then be even worse than you already are. Yeah. Like, 
it, it doesn't make any sense. Look but like, at the bigger picture. That's ex- what it's all it's, about. It's really hard to do that. But it's extremely hard to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, especially, it comes with age too. I mean, when you're young and you're in in your adolescent ages, it's like what's happening right in front of you right now. You can't think of anything else. So yeah. it's just having those mentors to kind of help you find that way. Well, s- well speaking of that, what's your uh, <laughs> definitions of toughness? Because I think back to my 17-year-old self when I had an excruciating headache after a game and then the symptoms never subsided, so I decided to play and almost killed myself. Uh, and if it weren't for an athletic trainer like you guys, I wouldn't be sitting here with you <laughs> with you today. Amazing. So what is your definitions of t- what are your definitions of toughness? My definition of toughness is keeping your composure through life's adversities and like mental preparedness for your sport and then also for your sport in your life and your life in your sport because it goal goes hand in hand. So it's not a physical aspect. It's more of how do I stand up to life's challenges every single day and keeping myself, keeping my head on my shoulders, having my moments of freak out because ha- being an emotional being is important, but then pulling it back together so that I can continue to take one step forward in front of the other. I like it. What about you, Marissa? You always take the words like right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, that's why we're partners. Me, but <laughs> for me, <laughs> that's why I love you. We work hands in hand so well together. Toughness is more of Dealing with what's handed to you. Yeah. Right? So no day is perfect. And understanding that, yes, we may have that all-star day. But like yesterday, we may have the day that everything went wrong. And then you just got to deal with it. You got to roll with it. And it's kind of talking about, yeah, you could be physically tough. You have to be mentally tough. But everything is a balance. So being able, for me, the biggest thing about being tough is being able to say no. Oh, yeah. And I learned that the hard way that, like, I'm not tough if I say yes to everything. I'm tough if I say no I can't do that it's kind of accepting and being like you know what I'm better than that that's I don't not gonna serve me I yes have is to the say easy no. way out yes. yes is totally the easy way out it's taken a long time to understand the value of no yep yeah for sure and like Marissa <laughs> said we literally had the mo- craziest <laughs> day yesterday leading up to our class and we both like we said just stood up to the challenge and we had an awesome class exactly. so it's just a matter of just works go with it yeah and when I think back to the night where I got injured yeah. The toughest mm-hmm. thing I could have done that night was say that I was hurt and I couldn't play. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But in the moment, you I don't think ever I'm, realize that. No, I'm a that. sissy. I can't. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. But so, it's a value to you for opening the conversation. You've allowed, like we said, you've highlighted the fact that it's okay to say no and that your wellness is so much more a priority and that it's okay. And you mentioned this earlier in the podcast. You have one body. You have and one. only you live with it for the rest of your exactly. life. So no matter what you're trying to prove to who. You're no the one, one else is going to do it. So. Exactly. And that's always the biggest thing is to remember. And I mean, I talk to the girls about this all the time. Any of my performers is, yeah, you may be trying to prove yourself to the director or whoever's in charge at that moment in time. But three months down the road from now, that's going to be a different person. And you're still stuck with whatever you have to deal with. Yep. Right. They'll forget about you. Exactly. It means no, nothing to them. Yep. So where can uh, the listeners find both of you on social media and yeah. online? You can find me at RomoFit. Uh, on Instagram, and then we also have an Instagram for our body ignition workshop, so it's body underscore ignition, and I also have a website, romofit.com, and Marissa, I'm just on Instagram kind of as my personal self. I use it as a mix of work stuff, personal life. Um, For me, again, everything I do is me. Yeah. I don't ever like to kind of break up business me versus personal me. This is me. You get what you get. All right. I love it. Well, Marissa and Monica, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on the podcast and uh, enlightening the listeners about the world of dance medicine. I know I learned a ton. Thank you. And I appreciate you guys as athletic trainers, obviously, because of the experience that I've had with an athletic trainer in my life. Um, And also being pioneers in an industry for underserved athletes. So it's really, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Mm -hmm.